as we come to the preaching of the Word this morning. Uh, this has been a hard two weeks uh, in my life, um, and it wouldn't have been that hard if I were not a pastor. But um, I did, I officiated at a funeral on Friday uh, of a young man age 26, and I had officiated at his wedding just two years ago in October. Uh, the son of someone very dear to my wife and me, uh, we've known her for about 14 years. She happens to be our hairdresser, and we've grown very close to her. Such a sweet, sweet, uh, gentle woman whom the Lord Jesus has delivered out of an incredibly awful upbringing in life. And she loses her son, uh, who had been afflicted with kidney disease over the last five years, almost died five years ago. Hard kind of situation to contemplate and think about that. But what made it hard was to think about all of those, and it was a large funeral, all of those who might have known the young man who passed away, who could not sing these two stanzas which we have just sung, who would not know that they were Jesus' little lamb. Another hard thing that happened in the last couple of weeks is a connection that uh, Julie continues on Facebook with a young man who graduated from Bakersfield Christian High School a dozen years ago or so. His father's a local pastor in town. And this young man has come to the point of believing that all religions are evil and destructive. And that um, if human beings would only understand that all they need to do is to love other human beings. That's the meaning and full purpose of life. And to think of all that he was instructed in his own home, by his parents, by his dad in particular, to think about his four years of receiving uh, in every Bible class the consistent message and truth, to be particularly confronted with how this whole conception of love that he now glorifies as his God, that understanding of love, the power of true love, the nature of true love, did not come out of any philosophy of the world and did not come out of paganism in any way whatsoever but the highest conception of love, which he still clings to, was given through the Lord Jesus Christ. I connect this with our message this morning because what I want to talk about is the knowledge of God. And the knowledge of God as it's uh, expressed in Genesis 1.1, the knowledge of God as God himself speaking through Isaiah defends that knowledge to Israel, and then ultimately the knowledge of God as we find it in Christ. So let's hear the Word of God this morning. Uh, we all know Genesis 1-1 by heart. Nevertheless, here it is. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
And then the passage in Isaiah, which is our second principal passage this morning, which provides a kind of commentary on Genesis 1-1. Chapter 40, beginning at verse 12 through verse 31. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him to understand? Who taught him the path of justice and who taught him understanding? Who who taught him knowledge and showed him in the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop in a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor its beast enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them, and they wither. And the tempest carries them off like rubble. Excuse me, like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exalted. But they who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Let's pray. Father, what incredible words. Give us then the incredible illumination of your Holy Spirit to understand them. Open our eyes that we may see marvelous things that spring forth from your law, even from your word. 
even from these passages and others that we will look at this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Remind you as we begin today that the point of this new series that we began last Sunday is to recognize that, that all of Scripture testifies concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Often people think that, well, we have the Old Testament, which is about the God of the Old Testament. We have the New Testament, and it's all about His Son. But that is a misreading of Scripture, and it certainly doesn't take what Jesus Himself said seriously. Uh, there was a point in John chapter 5 when He's confronted by the Pharisees, and He's confronting them back, and He says to them, You search the Scriptures because you think in them there is eternal life but it is they which testify concerning me. Jesus was making it clear that all of the Bible, all of Moses and the law, uh, all of the history, all of the prophets, uh, even all of the wisdom literature, uh, Job and the Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon, all of the Old Testament writings testify concerning Christ. And if that's the case, then we as believers ought to be able to read our Old Testament and in reading our Old Testament begin, be able to see, well, where does this testify about Christ in terms of anticipation of Christ or prophecy concerning Christ or, or even a type that would remind us of Christ? We need to be able to read our Old Testament in that way. Not so we have just a better knowledge maybe than others, but for this reason. If all of Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching and reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness so that the man of God, so that the people of God can be thoroughly equipped for every good work, then how much we need to understand all of the Scriptures. And if the great theme of the Scriptures happens to be the Lord Jesus, then we need to have the tools and the understanding and the perspective so that we can find Christ when we read through Leviticus. We need to be able to find Christ when we read through Joshua. We need to be able to find Christ as we read through the Psalms. We must be able to do that because Jesus said, all of the scriptures testify concerning him. We find Christ then in all of his word. Well, that's what we want to do in working through these things. And of course, the point of departure is going to be creation. And so last Sunday, we were looking at Genesis 1-1 and this passage in Isaiah and I pointed out how the first three commandments of the Ten Commandments, as it were, sort of outline the concerns that we find in Isaiah chapter 40, in those verses, and how the first three commandments of God also give us an important exposition of Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. Right? Uh, know that the God who created all of us, that's God. Have no other gods before me. Also, he's the creator. Uh, everything else is the creation. Everything else that you see is something created. Don't make idols. You shall not make unto yourself any graven idols or images of anything that's in heaven above or the earth beneath or the waters below the shoreline. Don't. And don't bow down and worship them. Don't. For I'm a jealous God. I will punish the children of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation of those who disregard this commandment, but I will bless to a thousand generations, generations upon generations, those who love me and honor me and keep these commandments. And then the third commandment. 
You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall not misuse God's name. The God who created everything. Why? The pagans misuse the name of God. They curse, they hex, they do spells, they do incantations because they try to take God and use God for their own purposes. You shall not take the name of God in vain. You must treat it as holy. So the commandments and those concerns we actually find wrapped into Isaiah chapter 40, verses 12 through 31. Because there, God addresses the fact that he's the creator, the only creator. There he addresses the folly of idolatry, and there he addresses how we relate to God in a proper way so that we're not being pagan in any way in which we would relate to God. We would relate to God in such a way that we honor truly who God is. Now this morning, we're just simply going to look at the second commandment's significance in light of Isaiah 40 and how that reflects God the Creator. The second commandment, you shall not make any carved image. You shall not make any graven image, King James language. You shall not make an idol, the New International Version, the nearly inspired version. You shall not do any of those things. Why? And that's what we're going to look at. Because ultimately, what Scripture declares to us is that God has had a great mission with respect to his world. And the great mission of God with respect to this world is to declare who he is and what he has done. So we can sort of think of, of, of outlining my message today this way. Think of God as the God who wants to reveal truly and faithfully who he is. And he's done this in three significant ways. Now, if we use the analogy of a school where God is the instructor, there's first and foremost, in terms of the primacy of it, the school of creation. But then secondly, what God has done with Israel would be the school of Israel. And then finally, in terms of ultimacy, would be Christ, the school of Christ. That's what I want us to see. I want us to look at Genesis 1.1, always keeping that in mind. I want us to think about the prophetic word from Isaiah 40, but I want us to realize what are we concerned about here with respect to the second commandment as it relates to these things. So, first of all, then, the school of creation. I want us to understand that when God created the world, it was his purpose to make himself known in the world. And so we read that God created human beings in his own image. Now, of course, as image bearers of God, we, have, uh, we would have, in the unfallen state of creation, an absolutely unobstructed uh, relationship such that we would instantly recognize who God is and instantly recognize that everything around us is his handiwork. That's part of what the image of God is all about. That God made us such that we would know him and we could look at the creation and know it, that it is his handiwork. God, the creator, created us in his image so that we might know him. We know that's the case because we know that when Jesus came, he said that his primary purpose was to make the Father known and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. John 17, verse 3. 
So the school of creation is the school that God has presented in all that he has done to testify that he is the creator and the creation manifests his character and who he is. Well, the Apostle Paul picks up on that in Romans chapter chapter 1. So let me read some verses there where Paul is reflecting upon God making himself known in creation. Now, we understand that this also comes in the context of Paul being very concerned to address the issue of human sin. And so we, we see that element. But don't miss that what is embedded in what he says here is how God has presented the true knowledge of the true God into this world. So he says, Romans 1, beginning at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and uh, all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of man, of men. Remember, uh, ladies, that's the inclusive men, men and women. This isn't because of some kind of toxic masculinity that Paul is saying this. This has everything to do with the sad state of all of humanity who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things which he has made and the things which have been made, so they are without excuse. Now, what is Paul saying? He's saying God has made his existence infallibly known to the world through creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. The earth shows forth his handiwork. There is no question, but the fingerprint of God is upon the heavens above and the earth beneath. Everywhere we look, we find the evidence of God's existence and his invisible power and his divine nature. Now, now that's critical because it's not that God has insufficient evidence of himself in the world. It's not just some evidence. It's not just highly probable evidence. It is absolutely conclusive evidence that he is the creator of all things. The insufficiency is the human being who looks at creation. The insufficiency lies in what the Apostle Paul said in this way. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. If God is not clearly seen in nature, it's because of the moral brokenness of human beings and their desire not to see God in all of creation. That's what Paul is telling us. But also in chapter 2 of Romans, verse 15, Paul makes that point about the human conscience, that even those who don't have the written law as it was given to Israel, nevertheless have a law that is written upon their hearts so that they know good and bad. They know right and wrong. In fact, the knowledge that every human being has of right and wrong 
uh, is described by Paul in chapter 1 of Romans, verses 28 to 32, where after listing all the bad things that people are and all the bad things that people do, he sums up in verse 31 to 32 to say this, Although they know the righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, nevertheless they do them, and they encourage others to do them with them. So, God has given us the school of creation to recognize that He is the true God. He has given that knowledge into the world. And what's the, what, what is the application of that to our understanding of human beings? Well, Paul pretty much says this. When they reject this, when they reject the true knowledge of the true God, their reaction is to go in the direction of worshiping the creatures of creation rather than the creator. Verse 21, For all they knew, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and animals, birds, creeping things, because, jumping down to verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Notice, these are volitional actions. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, what Paul is describing there is the history of the religious world that we can rightly call paganism. Uh, the idea that that which is to be worshipped is to be found in nature rather than transcendent above and beyond nature. Paganism believes that that which is worthy of worship is that which is to be found in nature. Now, of course, the nature that the pagan believes in is the nature of things that have divinity, like all of the different gods, but then human beings who also share in that divinity, and even nature itself which shares in that divinity. Because nature is all of one in paganism. It's all of one. It's all made of the same stuff. Uh, the gods, they're just a little more divine because they're just a little more divine, but divinity is involved in everything. So there, the movement, when the true knowledge of the true God is rejected, is paganism. To worship the things of this world, having rejected the truth about God, exchanging that truth for a lie. And there are consequences to it. Uh, the consequences, in fact, lock the people who follow this path into spiritual darkness. The whole creation declares not that it is God, it declares the glory of the God who created it. So, when you look at the world, you have to recognize that God has given an excellent school presenting and establishing the knowledge of Him in this world. Creation is a most excellent school of God and the knowledge of God. However, 
it's proper to say that it's only a grammar school. Or maybe at best, a secondary school. Because the bottom line for what Paul says is, so that they, meaning fallen humanity, who have gone into worshiping the things of this world rather than God, they are without excuse. What he means is, we know this in the Christian faith, all of us will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. There's a final judgment to all things. Those who are going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ will not be able to say, well, because I was born a Buddhist, I didn't hear about Christ, therefore I'm not responsible for the gospel. No. God will basically say, you knew of me, you knew of me. I gave you two profound witnesses. My law was in your heart, and my glory was in all of creation. You should have rejected everything that was inconsistent with that, and you should have begun to seek me. Not embrace the Buddhism of no God at all. Not embrace the Hinduism of a thousand gods. Not embrace the Islam that uh, came after God's full revelation in the scripture. No, none of that. When the Bible says they will be without excuse, they will be without excuse. Then the second school that God has presented is the school of Israel. We might say that there's a perfect college education in terms of the school of Israel, in terms of God presenting and promoting the knowledge of him. And here is where I want us to focus just on the second commandment out of all the things which the Old Testament presents to us and displays for us and reveals to us in terms of the nature of God, because our concern is paganism, as we're looking at it this morning, let's look at the second commandment a little more closely. The second commandment tells us that you shall not make unto yourself any graven image, any idol in any form of anything that you find in the heavens, anything that you find upon the earth, anything that might be in the waters below the shoreline. Don't do that, the commandment says. And don't worship them. And don't bow down to them. Why? Because I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, I want you to glory in the fact that God is a jealous God. God is jealous for who he is. God is jealous for his reputation, and God is jealous for his people that they would know who he is and not have any false beliefs or false thinking about him. Because that, in fact, is the nature of the second commandment. It leads people into false ideas and conceptions about God. Now, I'll say a little bit more on that for a moment, but understand that God's concern in the second commandment is very much addressed to the context of the people of Israel during Old Testament times. You know, they're delivered out of Egypt, out of some 400 years of being prisoners uh, in, a, in a, uh, a, a nation that has nothing but paganism ruling over it. And you can imagine that they had lots of restrictions to set up their, quote, Christian schools as slaves in order to teach the faith faithfully. Uh, no little time. Uh, it would have been difficult to keep that faith 
properly presented from one generation to the next during those 400 years without the pressures and the contamination and the influence of paganism seeping in. That's the only way to understand the episode of the golden calf after the Exodus. The golden calf is an episode of the resurgence of pagan thought that even Aaron gave into. Throws the, as explained to Moses, well, we just threw some gold into the fire and out sprang this golden calf. And I said, uh, here, here is your God, O Israel, that brought you out. Interesting, but, you know, one of the Psalms, Psalm 115, verse 8, tells us, that those who make idols become like them? The stupidest thing we find in all of the Old Testament is what Aaron said. He makes an idol, and then he says this stupid thing about how it came to be. Not a good recommendation for paganism. But, but back to the point of the second commandment and the concern about paganism and the kind of deep pressures that existed upon Israel to revert back. So there's these warnings in the book of uh, Deuteronomy. In chapter 7, the first five verses, hear these words. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, all of them deeply uh, involved in the, in the worst sorts of paganism by now. Verse 2, you shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons or you shall not take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will quickly destroy you. And thus, this is what you shall do. You shall tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, and hew down their ashram which were totems uh, to the female goddesses, and burn their graven images with fire. God was really clear. Uh, we don't dare go into the promised land and not eradicate and protect you and build a wall around you because of paganism. You just, we just can't trust anything here unless you understand all the dangers that are inherent in where you're going and what you're going up against. So the Isaiah passage, you know, 500 years later, uh, reminds us that the Israelites were still having trouble with the pressures of paganism. And so he says in verse 18, To whom then will you liken me, liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for its silver chains. He who is too impoverished for such an offering chooses wood that will not rot, he seeks out a skillful craftsman to set it up, to set up the idol. And then the last four words, an idol, that will not move. An idol, that does nothing. An idol that has no motion. An idol that has no activity. An idol that does nothing. That's God's point. There are a number of passages in the Psalms that, that remind the Israelites of the dangers and the folly of idolatry. Psalm 96.5, For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Psalm 97.7, All worshipers of images are put to shame. 
who make their boasts in worthless idols. Worship him, meaning God, all you gods. Psalm 106, verse 38. Here's what the Israelites did when they fell into idolatry, even in the wilderness. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. And then Psalm 115.8, which I've alluded to already. Those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. So the great concern of God is that if you follow an idol, you're going to become just like an idol. An, an idol is deaf and dumb. An idol doesn't do anything. An idol is worthless in terms of any value in the world. And that's what will happen to you. You will become spiritually worthless. You will become something that really has no value. And yet, you were created in the image of God. You were created to reflect God. But your very purpose in terms of, of being created to reflect God will come to nothing if you pursue idolatry. You will reflect that which you worship. And if idols are nothing, your own reflection in this life will become empty and barren. School of Israel, designed to help the people of God have their knowledge of God stated really clearly. Another way of looking at this is to recognize that God is concerned about the truth about who he is. Because an idol, by its very nature, is a misrepresentation of God. Help you to understand this. How is God to be defined? Many things go on in the Old Testament that we would say, God is defining and teaching by virtue of examples. How did God teach about our sin being paid for by the shedding of blood? You don't find that described in a verbal sense. You find it described for us in a dramatic sense by the examples that God or the, or the pattern and ritual that God set up that then becomes a kind of illustration and example of what blood atonement means. So a priest is designated, uh, a worshiper who's sinful is designated, uh, the tabernacle and temple is designated, and a sacrificial animal. The animal has symbolic meaning. It has to be spotless. Uh, the priest has to be a proper mediator appointed by God. Uh, the sinner has to come in this act of worship confessing his sins. He has to place his hands on the head of the animal. The priest slays the animal. The animal dies. The blood is shed. What does all of that mean? God was illustrating the meaning. He was showing the meaning rather than telling the meaning. When you have definitions that are done by example, as opposed to definitions that are verbal, you have what is called an ostensive definition. So God defined so many of the aspects of salvation and redemption and atonement in what we would call an ostensive fashion. 
He did it in history. He did it by examples. He was showing his people again and again and again, this is how you are made right with God. But when it comes to God, you cannot in any way define God in an ostensive manner. You can't point to something and say, this is God. A chair, I don't have to define a chair. I can just point to a chair and say, well, that's a chair, and then that's a chair, and that's a chair, and that's a chair. After a while, little children learning the language get it. They understand what a chair is. You only have to show them. You don't have to define it for them. Every idol is an attempt to define God ostensibly. But God can't be defined ostensibly. God can't be defined by the physical dimensions of what God is. God can't be defined by the uh, temporal dimensions of what God is. God can't be defined by the composition of his nature. God can't be defined by somehow saying, this is how tall he is, this is how large he is, uh, he has this many hands, he has this many nose. God can't be defined in any of the ways in which we can define things in this world. Why? Because God is not of this world. God created this world. And every ostensive, every attempt to ostensively define God is false theology. An idol is false theology. Every idol sells God short in terms of who he is. Every idol is an offense to the true identity of who God is. Any worship that has in view something other than who God is, is of great offense to a God who is jealous for who he is and jealous that his people would not be led astray into darkness. So, the Old Testament, the second commandment, is one of the primary concerns in the school of Israel as God fulfills his mission to make himself known in this world. Finally, school of Christ. In the school of Christ, God has given the final and fullest revelation of who he is. And now, because of the theme of what we're speaking on, we need to connect this then also to the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, notice what Jesus says about why he came. John 14, 9, he makes the claim, He who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is the only ostensive definition of God. The incarnation is the only icon, image of God given to us. John 17, 6. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. John 1, 18. No one has ever seen God, but God, the only begotten, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And then in Hebrews chapter 1. In the past... God spoke to our forefathers at many times and in many ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory 
the Son is the exact representation of his being. Jesus is the only ostensive definition of God. He is in space and time in his incarnation. The only thing of space and time of this physical creation that can properly and adequately reveal God. Because as the Apostle Paul said, in Christ, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Now Christ being God's revelation of himself into this world. The school of Christ tells us there is no religious truth and there is no spiritual truth in any place where Christ is not given his rightful place. New Testament makes this clear. Jesus says in John 5, 23, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. 1 John 2.23, the Apostle says, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. 1 John 4.2-3 By this you know the Spirit of God. Well, the Spirit of God the one true and ever-living God? Here's how you know the true Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. But rather, that's the spirit of the Antichrist. Now, we need to understand that though the school of Christ is the ultimate revelation of of God's mission in the world to reveal who he is. The school of Christ didn't begin 2,000 years ago at Christmas time. The school of Christ has been from the very beginning. That's what Jesus taught the apostles. That's what this series is all about. I want to show you this by going to the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Read through that entire song of Moses at some point, but I'm just going to hit some verses here in several places. It's the last great poetic thing that Moses does before God takes his life and then the people of Israel follow Joshua into the promised land. So chapter 32, verses 3 and 4. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. Verse 6, is he not your father, your creator, who made you and formed you? Verse 15 to 18. But Jeshurun, which is a nickname for Israel, Israel grew fat and kicked. You grew stout and sleek. Then you forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. Notice, paganism. If you don't worship God, you fall into paganism. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. 
You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. Then Moses makes this final comparison between the pagans and their gods and the God of Israel. Verse 31. He says, For their rock is not as our rock. Our enemies are by themselves. Meaning, the enemies trust in that which is nothing at all, ultimately. The gods of the pagans are nothing. Those who follow them actually exist alone. But how does that relate to Jesus? How does that passage in Deuteronomy point to the school of Christ in the Old Testament? Listen to the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, first four verses. He's speaking to the time of the Exodus. He's speaking to the time of the wilderness wanderings. And look at what Paul says. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food, and they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from that spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. When Moses makes reference to the rock in Deuteronomy 32 in his great song, Paul is telling us that rock was Christ. Before Jesus ever came into this world and became the perfect image of God in this world, the perfect one to worship in rejecting all of the gods of the pagans, Paul is saying it wasn't just recently that our God came into this world, that Christ came into this world. It has ever been the case that the true God and Christ are one and the same. That Christ led the people of old. Christ was with his people when they were brought out of the Exodus. Christ, the eternal Son, with his Father and with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity, has been actively involved in all of the creation and redemption of the world from that ancient beginning to its ultimate consummation. And so Jesus first telling us, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life, but it is they which bear witness of me. When we read the words that came into this world by the God whose mission was to make himself known, we need to see our Lord Jesus in those same words in which we read about the God of Israel. Why do we need this? Again and again, the Old Testament refers to the God of Israel as the rock, even as the New Testament makes it clear that Christ himself was that rock. Pagans worship nothing. They have no anchor. We are those bought by the blood of Christ to worship Christ so that we have Christ as our rock, a sure foundation, and our anchor. You and I need this. 
when you sit with so many who don't know the Lord, visiting with them, being present with them when their hearts are broken by the loss of someone they cared about and love. You understand what is the darkness like? What is it all about? And in those moments when your heart breaks for these people, you long for them. You long for them. If only they had the rock. If only they had the Lord Jesus. If only they could know the Christ who would ever be with them. Brothers and sisters, live tightly connected to this rock and live in such a way that that rock will be manifested through who you are and what you do. Let's pray. We, we thank you, Almighty God, for giving us the knowledge of yourself to a world that needs you so, so deeply. We need you so deeply. Lord, grant us so much grace to be so anchored into your Son that our lives would show him forth with all those around us who don't know you. Please, we pray. In, our, in your Son's name, amen.